0: Please turn with me to Luke eight. We'll read verses forty one to fifty six. You know, we're actually going to stop at verse 48. It complete. There, this is, uh, there are two overlapping stories here. We're mainly focused on one of them. So later you can read on your own the end of the story of Jairus's daughter. But beginning at verse 41, there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now let's turn to Micah chapter 1. This is right after Jonah. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah... Micah, near the end of the Old Testament, right before Nahum. Micah chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will Go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches for her wound is incurable. And it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all in Bethlehem. Roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Za'anan do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish, it was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. For in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Oksib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Marashah, The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald. Cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, the last couple of weeks, talking about the book of Jonah, I mentioned a couple of times that although the history of Jonah is all about Jonah prophesying to the city of Nineveh in Assyria, right, the book of Jonah, as we find it in the scriptures, is written to who? Who's the audience? The book of Jonah is written to Israel, right? That means that Nineveh's response to Jonah's preaching was being presented to Israel in the book of Jonah as an example and a warning. This is how you need to listen and respond to God's word when it comes to you. Because Israel, too, was under threat of the judgment of God. And so, Israel, when God's prophets come and tell you this, like Jonah told Nineveh, how are you going to respond? Are you going to listen and repent like Nineveh did? Don't be outdone, in other words, by pagan Nineveh. If pagan Nineveh, awful, terrible Nineveh, could do this, then why can't you, Israel, the people of God, the covenant people, why can't you listen to God's word and and turn from your sin and be saved? As we saw last week, Jesus was making basically that very point to Israel in his day. In the passage where he talks about the sign of Jonah. Saying, Nineveh is going to put this generation of Israel to shame. As I've come to preach to them and they're rejecting me. Well, today we're continuing our progress through the minor prophets with the very next one. With the prophecy of Micah. Sometimes we can think of the minor prophets as kind of disconnected and they are each independent uh, works to, to some degree, coming at different t- uh, from different time periods in Israel's history. But I'd like us for, uh, for us to think for a minute about the significance of these two books being side-by-side side in the canon of Scripture. There is, I think, a flow of thought from Jonah to Micah. Because in the one case... Jonah goes to Nineveh and preaches, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Really, in Micah, in substance, it is the same dire message. That same declaration of impending doom that's coming now to Israel and Judah. In a short time from now, Micah is saying, you will be overthrown, Israel. And so the call for Israel and Judah in Micah's day is really the same as the call for Nineveh. God's people need to listen and repent. They need to turn to God. They need to forsake their sin. They need to embrace his promises. And the same hope, therefore, despite the dark tone of Micah's message in many places, as well as Jonah's message, the same hope is being held out as well. And so today we're going to examine this opening salvo of Micah's prophecy using... Three headings. First will be a prophet in dark times, verse 1. Just getting to the background a little bit. Then second, the coming of the Lord, verses 2 through 9. And third, the enemy at the gates, verses 10 to 16. So a prophet in dark times, the coming of the Lord, and the enemy at the gates. All right, so verse 1, of uh, the prophet in dark times, says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So um, I'd like to work backwards through that verse and start by talking about Samaria and Jerusalem. Make sure you understand what's meant by those two city names. Um, what this does is it sets Micah's prophecy in the period of the div- what we call the divided monarchy. The divided monarchy of Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Do so you remember that under King David and King Solomon... All 12 tribes of Israel were united under one king. But all of that was ruined a generation later when Solomon's son uh, Rehoboam um, was king, when the the 10 northern tribes um, split off, seceded. They refused to be ruled by the descendants of David anymore. And instead, they set up their own king, Jeroboam. Well, several generations after that, one of their kings, northern king Uh, Omri, or Omri, who was the father of uh, the infamous king Ahab. Um, Omri built the city of Samaria, and Samaria became the royal capital for the northern kingdom. So you had these two capital cities, Samaria in the north, Jerusalem in the south, and Judah. So Micah then, verse 1 is saying, Micah's prophecy is going to concern both of those capital cities, He's going to talk about both Samaria and Jerusalem, north and south. Uh, and so it's no surprise then that chapter 1 goes on to be approximately half and half. Verses 2 through 7 about the northern kingdom, verses 10 to 16 about Judah, the southern kingdom, with a little transition in between. Okay, so Micah's subject matter is going to be both north and south. He's talking about Samaria and Jerusalem. But. Who's his audience? Who is he speaking to primarily? Well, his primary audience, the context for his ministry, in other words, is apparently the southern kingdom and the southern kings, the kings reigning in Jerusalem. He prophesied. verse 1 says, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, the reign of those three kings uh, came during a very, very momentous time in Bible history. We're talking about the 8th century B.C., or the 700s. Um, in fact, if you're going to commit to memory, maybe just a handful of dates. You don't have to memorize lots of dates about Bible history, but if you were going to remember just a, just a few of them, one of the most important dates to remember is the year 722 B.C. 722 B.C. is the year that the Assyrian Empire overran the northern kingdom completely. They captured the capital city of Samaria... And they carried the inhabitants of the northern kingdom of Israel into permanent exile from which they never returned. And um, all of that took place right in the middle of Micah's prophetic ministry. Don't forget, by the way, what was the capital of Assyria? This this great empire that overran the northern kingdom. The capital of, of Assyria is Nineveh, the city that Jonah was preaching to. You see how there's this tie, and they, they fit together here. Jonah preaching a few decades earlier. <clears throat> okay, so that destruction of Samaria in 722 BC, well, that was not the last that um, Judah and Jerusalem would hear of the Assyrians. Because about 20 years later, in the year 701 BC, I have to remember that, that date, but 20 years after the destruction of Samaria, Assyria invaded again. This time, they invaded Judah. And this is where you get the history of Sennacherib's army in 2 Kings 19. And for a time, it looked like Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, just like Samaria was. But at the last moment, you remember the Lord intervenes. Sennacherib's army is destroyed. Jerusalem is spared. God brings Judah back from the brink, as it were. And why is that? because King Hezekiah, unlike his northern counterparts, King Hezekiah listened. He listened to God's prophets. He led the people in repentance from their national sins. And he led the reformation, really, of Israel's worship. Um, in fact, before we get into the rest of chapter 1, I want to show you something important for understanding Micah's background um, that comes to us in the book of Jeremiah. So bear with me as we flip around a little bit. We're just going to go to this one other passage, Jeremiah chapter 26. I invite you to turn there because um, it's the one other mention of the prophet Micah um, in the Bible. A very significant one. Jeremiah 26. Okay, so Jeremiah prophesied about a century after Micah. About 100 years later It's Jeremiah's ministry. Um, And at that time, Judah is again at a crossroads. The question is, are they going to listen to the prophetic word from Jeremiah? Are they going to repent now as they're facing the threat of Babylon, a different empire? Um, And there were some people in Jerusalem who hated Jeremiah's preaching so much that they wanted to kill him. Um, But then others resisted. Others were protecting Jeremiah. And let's see why. What did they say in his defense? Look at Jeremiah 26, verse 17 and certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, Micah of Morasheth." Okay, see, they're going to compare Jeremiah's ministry to Micah's ministry a hundred years earlier. Micah of Morasheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, and what follows there is a quote directly from Micah chapter 3, verse 12. And then they ask, did Hezekiah king of Judah and all Judah put him to death? Did he, Hezekiah, not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we, we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. Okay, so you see again the close relationship then between the ministry of Jonah and the ministry of Micah. Jonah prophesied to Nineveh, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. But they and their king repented, and the Lord relented. Now look how these people, 100 years later, are remembering the ministry of Micah. Micah prophesied to Jerusalem, that Jerusalem would be destroyed. But they and their king repented, and the Lord relented. This is the great fruit of Micah's ministry in his own time, in the time of Hezekiah. So and I want you to make sure you keep this in mind as we dive into what is going to be a very gloomy chapter. Um, Micah contains a lot of bad news, a lot like Jonah was commissioned to bring to Nineveh some very bad news, yet 40 days in Nineveh will be overthrown. You see, like Jonah, like with Jonah, the bigger message of Micah, when you see it in in that historical context, and you remember the fruit of Micah's ministry, the bigger message of Micah is a a, a message of profoundly good news. Good news for sinners. That there is hope in the goodness and the grace of God for those who respond in faith to to his prophetic word and turn their hearts towards him and away from their sin. Okay, let's continue then by getting into the prophecy itself. Verses 2 through 9, the coming of the Lord. In the Bible, there are many descriptions of the coming of the Lord. God arriving, God entering his creation and and meeting, encountering, confronting um, his creatures. But that coming of God is portrayed in kind of contrasting ways in different parts of the Bible. So Psalm 98, for example, the coming of God in Psalm 98 is pictured as an occasion of, really, it's riotous joy for the natural world, uh, for the whole creation. It's the, let rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. This is good news, the Lord is coming. And that psalm, of course, is the inspiration for the, a uh, hymn, Joy to the World. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Heaven and nature sing. The coming of the Lord is good news, right? But that's not the only way that the Bible pictures the coming of God. Compare that. Compare the, that joy to the world attitude towards God's coming with Micah 1, verses 2 through 4. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention O earth and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple, the Lord is come, essentially. See, that's what it's saying. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. Once again, God's coming is impacting. It's, it's rocking the whole creation with a very different tone, a very different impact. Not that exuberant joy like in Psalm 98. This is uh, an impact of, of upheaval, of destruction of the creation just melting before the, the onslaught of its creator, coming not in salvation, but in judgment. And why? Why this onslaught of God into the world? Well, verse 5 gives the answer, all this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel, including both the northern and the southern kingdoms at this point. <clears throat> um, notice the this very stark, very extreme terms with which Micah kind of indicts both Samaria and Jerusalem there in verse 5. It says, what is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? Think about that. Samaria is so bad that it doesn't just contain sin. It doesn't just have some sinners living in it. It doesn't just have some false worship contaminating it. From God's point of view, the city of Samaria is Israel's transgression. It's become identified with its sin. Jerusalem is the same way understand what it means by Jerusalem being a high place here. So throughout the history of the southern kingdom, a recurring problem was that the people kept setting up these high places. That's what they were called. High places were these mountaintop worship centers at various places in the hills around Judah. And uh, they would worship there uh, because it was more convenient and resembled more the way that the Canaanites around them would worship. Um, they would, uh, and God's word forbade that. They weren't supposed to set up high places, and yet they kept doing it because they wanted to worship that way instead of going to Jerusalem to worship, which is what God's word commanded them to do. They were supposed to go to Jerusalem, and instead they worshiped these high places. What's really shocking about what Micah's saying here is that what is the high place of Judah? What is this center of false worship? It's Jerusalem itself is the high place of Judah the holy city, the city of David, the city of the temple, that city has become so corrupt that God sees it by now as another high place, as the high, the arch high place of Judah, the leading center of false worship there in the southern kingdom. You know, it can be very tempting for us to view our sin as sort of incidental, um, to who we are, kind of added on. Something, well, it's unfortunate and bad, but it's not really, it's not really me. That's not, that's not me. Uh, we prefer to think of ourselves as basically good people who have just kind of made some mistakes. Right? You ever heard somebody say, I, I made a mistake. But surely God sees me as basically Okay. And, of course, God, what I want God to do is just help me to get rid of those bad things that have kind of latched onto my life from outside. But, of course, that's not really me. See, that's not the Bible's view of our sin. In his famous commentary on Galatians, Martin Luther, in his typical mm, blunt and kind of almost overstated manner, he says, he says this, If I had no sin, I should not need Christ. No, Satan, you cannot delude me into thinking I am holy. The truth is, I am all sin. That's Luther's view of himself. I am all sin. My sins are not imaginary transgressions, but sins of unbelief, doubt, despair, contempt, hatred, ignorance of God, ingratitude towards him, misuse of his name, neglect of his word. And he goes on, therefore, he says, I am a transgressor of all the commandments of God because my transgressions are multiplied and my efforts at self-justification are rather a hindrance than a furtherance. Therefore, therefore, Christ the Son of God gave himself into death for my sins. To believe this, Luther reminds us, is eternal life. And so he ends there with very good news, of course. But it comes only after acknowledging the depths of that initial bad news that I'm not just a basically good person who has committed some sins. As Luther says, I am all sin. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? And therefore, what is God? Sorry, <clears throat> what is God going to do? He's going to make Samaria, he says, a heap in the open country. The Lord goes on to describe here the total destruction of this northern capital city, which in fact did occur. Uh, that's important to realize. Israel and Judah, Samaria and Jerusalem, present us with two contrasting outcomes. It's kind of a fork in the road. Two different ways of responding to God's word with two different consequences. So Judah, hearing Micah preach, was able to look at and see the example of Samaria. This is what actually does happen when you don't listen, when you don't repent. So imagine how alarming it would have been then to hear in verse 9 that incurable wound of Samaria. What happened to them? has now come to Judah. And in fact, it has reached the very gate of my people to Jerusalem itself. This is a wake-up call for Hezekiah and the southern kingdom. Look at what happened to Samaria 20 years ago. Do you want that to happen to you? Now, verses 10 to 16 um, are maybe a little disorienting because all these kind of obscure-sounding place names. And um, I wouldn't blame you at all if you felt a little glazed over as we read through that part, Um, because there are a lot of just unfamiliar little details, things that aren't really mentioned a lot in other parts of the Bible. But uh, this this is a place where some Bible scholarship, some commentary work can really help us a lot, because there are actually a few key pieces of background context that make a big difference when you understand them. Help you kind of say, "Oh, now I get what's going on here." Um, first of all, this is kind of a basic one. Just that opening phrase in verse ten, where it says, "Tell it not in Gath." That may sound familiar to you. Gath was historically a Philistine, a major Philistine city. City Goliath was from, um, and when Saul and Jonathan were defeated and killed by the Philistines just before David uh, took the throne of Israel. David, uh, remember, mourned their deaths in 2 Samuel 1 using this very exclamation, tell it not in Gath. In other words, I don't want Israel's enemies to be gloating over this great defeat of God's people. Um, Even though Israel's defeat has been so severe that they would have every reason to gloat. Uh, But tell it not in Gath. So that's the background for that phrase. Um, Second thing, uh, the, the place names... Uh, mentioned in this section. Uh, Any good commentary on this passage will tell you that they are all cities to the southwest of Jerusalem um, along the very route that the invading Assyrian army of Sennacherib would have taken as that army approached the city of Jerusalem in 701 leading up to that great showdown before the walls of Jerusalem in 2 Kings 18. So the Assyrian army approaches, they come down from the north, they follow a great road uh, that's to the west of Jerusalem, down through um, the the land, and they come up at Jerusalem from the southwest. Um, And these are cities in that region that they would have passed through on their way to lay siege to Jerusalem. So that's important for understanding. This is about Snakrib's army approaching the city to lay siege to it. Then one last thing uh, that the commentators point out is that in this whole section, um, Micah is using something you, you can't see as clearly in English because it's, it's involving wordplay. It has to do with the sounds of the words in Hebrew. where He's playing off of the name of each one of these cities and the meanings of those names in Hebrew um, uh, with other Hebrew words that sound the same, uh, kind of like making puns. Uh, at least, or word plays is probably, pun sounds trivial, but they're, they're word plays to kind of make more vivid uh, the message here. Um, in fact, I could share with you, I thought this was really helpful. I found this in um, Tremper Longman and Ray Dillard's introduction to Micah. They get it from another scholar who quoted it from a man named James Moffat, who was trying to give a paraphrase of this passage in a way that kind of would give you the effect. If this had been written in English, how might an English uh, English poetry show these word plays. And so listen to this paraphrase of verses 10 and following. It's as if Micah's saying, tell it not in telling town. Wail not in wailing. Dust manor will eat dirt. Dressy town will flee naked. Safe fold will not save. Walchester's walls are down. A bitter dose drinks bitter town. Towards Jerusalem, city of peace... Jerusalem means. The Lord sends war. Um, it goes on, there's a couple other clauses here, but in, to welfare, a last farewell, for trapping trapped Israel's kings. You can see these word plays, how he's, he's playing off the names of these cities and showing how their names reflect different aspects of the judgment that God is bringing. I say all of that just to to show you there's a method to Micah's madness here. This isn't just a trivial list of place names that don't mean anything to us. This is very rhetorical. It's very literary. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Micah is bringing all of this rhetorical and literary power to bear to wake Judah up, to shake them from their complacency and their sin, to stir them up to repentance. Micah is is bringing Judah and Jerusalem face-to-face with the incurable wound of Samaria in all of its ugliness and horror. And he's saying, wake up! This incurable wound has now come to your doorstep. It has reached the very gates of Jerusalem. Which, of course, is literally what took place when Snakrib's army marched through Bethlehem, and Lachish, and all of the rest of these cities, and laid siege to the capital. What a word picture that is, an incurable wound. It's not just what the invasion of the Assyrian army is is like. That's what Israel's sin is like. That's what all sin is like. It is deadly. It is lethal. It's like an Affects us with a spiritual gangrene that no medicine, no therapy has the power to save us from. And Samaria's destruction illustrates for us very lurid colors the natural end of the road for sinners. I, I think of that woman in the Gospel of Luke with the flow of blood, an incurable disease. it's not that she hadn't tried. She had even suffered much, Luke says, at the hands of many physicians, and she had spent all that she had trying to get this disease cured. But nobody could do it. No physician could heal her. Her case was incurable. Until... until one came whose power could overcome what by every other measure seemed insurmountable. And in Jesus, that woman found a power that could cure her incurable wound. In Micah's lament, over the incurable wound of Israel that now has come to Jerusalem's doorstep. Implied is a call for Judah to turn to the one who alone has the power to save them from this kind of inevitable doom that he's picturing, who does have the power to cure their incurable wound. And I think the message of Micah It's very much the same for God's people today then. Earlier I quoted Martin Luther's evaluation of his own heart when he said, I am all sin. That is our incurable wound. And we are liable. We are liable, each and every one of us, to this same fury of the judgment of God tearing the creation apart in that onslaught of judgment against the sin and evil in our hearts. Left to ourselves in that utter sinfulness that comes so naturally to us. The coming of God, that is not a message of joy to the world for us. That coming of God would be for us this thing of terror that Micah describes. Not of joy. Except for this. Except for this, that God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. Their wound would not be incurable. And the coming of God for them would not be a terror any longer, but they would have instead eternal life. In fact, the Lord says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us on the cross. We are the ones who were all sin. Jesus knew no sin in his perfect life, and yet he became sin for us on the cross. Why? So that in him we might become instead the righteousness of God. If you want proof, if you want proof... That God has the power to cure the incurable, to heal the unhealable wound of your sin, then you need to look no further than Jesus Himself. Because what could be more incurable? What could be more incurable than death? The last enemy. You think what's, what happened to the woman with the flow of blood is remarkable. What if we had read on and heard what happened to Jairus' daughter? And furthermore, what happened to Jesus himself after he died, when he rose from the dead? And in the resurrection of Jesus, the incurable was cured. Death was defeated. And that is why, that is why it is by virtue of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that you and I are being called together this morning to listen to his word, to the word of Christ, to listen and turn from our sin in faith to him, to embrace his promises, to submit to his lordship, and to rejoice, to rejoice in the grace and the power of this great physician, this great physician who has brought us from death to life, who has cured our incurable wound of sin. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess and acknowledge freely that we, by nature, are all sin and our wound is incurable. Apart from Christ, Lord, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but, Lord, you have made us alive together with him by your grace alone. We have been saved. We thank you for this good news. And Lord, we pray that with this in mind, you would help us to listen and heed your warnings as they come to us through this prophet, Micah. So that your coming for us would not be a terror, but a great joy in Christ. And we ask all these things in his name. Amen.